0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.
1: Is the Michelin Man an alien? Was there an outbreak of UFO sightings in the 1890s? Did a Japanese airliner really encounter a mothership in 1986?
2: Hello, and welcome to the 945th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WON AM and FM in Woonsocket, uh, uh, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those uplifting questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today we welcome a new and distinguished guest.
1: Michael Schratt is a private pilot and aviation historian who has investigated UFO encounters for over 25 years. Uh, Between 2008 and 2009, Michael meticulously reviewed a minimum of 50,000 cases which were preserved at the CUFOS, or Center for UFO Studies, archives in Chicago. In an effort to maintain an important part of our national history, Michael has recreated dozens of highly credible UFO cases through drawings, illustrations, and commissioned artwork. Many of these include USO, or Unidentified Submerged Objects, uh, extraterrestrial encounters, and prehistory UFO cases, which have never seen the light of day. Michael has appeared on multiple media platforms, including Coast to Coast AM, History Channel, The Paranormal Matrix, UFO Hunters, Fade to Black, and In addition, Michael has been a guest speaker at multiple UFO conferences. He will speak at the uh, MUFON, a Mutual UFO Network symposium, in Denver in
0: July.
2: So, Michael Strat, welcome to Behind the Paranormal.
0: Thanks for giving me the opportunity to join both of you. Appreciate it. Very good. Well, it's so, al-
2: always always fun to have somebody new on, and and it seems like as long as long as we've done this show, now all 945 plus episodes. It's you know, There's always new people to meet, always new things to learn, and we're really really excited to have you here. So I guess we'll just we'll we'll hop right into it, right into the meat and potatoes. What is the most significant UFO encounter you're aware of among the least known cases? Uh,
0: okay, no problem. Uh, I guess uh, the the best way to start is to dig down into the government's own files. Uh, we're talking about Project Blue Book here, but within those files, there's an an obscure case that really hasn't been talked about. But personally, it's my favorite. I think it encapsulates everything that we want to talk about here. And let me set the scene for you here. It's March 23, 1966, Temple, Oklahoma. And an electrical engineer by the name of Eddie Laxon is driving down the road. It's about 5.03 in the morning. And again, this is not my case. This is the United States government Project Blue Book case. He's driving down the road, 5.05 in the morning, and the sun is just rising up above the horizon, so it's still a little bit uh, dark out yet. And all of a sudden, something is blocking the road. And it can only be described as a bowling pin tipped over 90 degrees on its side. The best way to describe this thing. Uh, Now, I have his original sketch here. I have the original Project Blue Book report. And what I want to kind of do is... You know, over the radio, we will describe this uh, in detail so people can get a kind of a sight picture in their mind. Now, off to the right of this bowling pin, we'll start at the at the right-hand side and work our way toward the left. Hand. Now, this is just after he put on the brakes and was looking at this strange bowling pin parked right in front of him. Uh, it was about 75 feet in length. It was 8 feet tall. And basically, it had on the very forward leading edge of the craft something that looked like a bubble transparent canopy that looked like it was stolen from a B-26. Now, there were two beaming spotlights that were shining directly vertically down toward the ground. There were two beaming spotlights heading forward, and then this whole thing was propped up on what looked like Pogo landing gear, lunar landing gear legs, about three and a half feet tall. Now, just after the forward landing gear legs, there was an air stair door, and next to the air stair door, there was a man standing next to the air stair door. This was a man, not an alien, not an extraterrestrial. He was wearing two-piece military green fatigues. He had a flashlight that was shining down toward the air stair door like he was examining something. And then, according to Eddie Laxon, who's an electrical engineer who worked at Shepard Air Force Base, he said that he was wearing a baseball cap with the bill turned up. Now, just above this air stair door, there was a spire or stinger that swept back toward the aft end of the craft that terminated into a 10-inch diameter sphere. And further aft, as we're going aft toward the uh, back end of the craft, there was a porthole window that was lit from inside that had uh, four equal pie segments. So it was divided into four equal pie segments, approximately three and a half feet in diameter. Just aft of that porthole window, and this is where it gets interesting, there was written in black letters TL4768 written on the side of the craft. At the very end of the craft there were two small flight control surfaces that appeared to be way too small to be effective aerodynamically. Now, when the man who was wearing the two-piece military green fatigue, when he saw that he was being watched by Eddie Laxon, he hurried up this air stair door, he closed the door, then according to the Project Blue Book report, there was a high-pitched drilling noise. This craft took off the ground, sat there hovering off the ground, maybe 25 feet, sat there for about 30 seconds, and then took off like a spark on a grinding wheel and made no sonic boom whatsoever. This is March 1966. Now, Eddie Laxon, he was shocked. He got back into his car. He drove another half mile down the road, and he saw a truck driver pulled off to the side of the road. The truck driver was uh, outside the driver's side window, standing on the running boards, kind of looking up, and Eddie Laxon pulled off to the side of the road and asked him if he needed help, and this truck driver proceeded to tell Eddie Laxon the exact same craft that he had just seen literally two minutes earlier. So we had independent confirmation from two separate sources on the same vehicle. This is March twenty third, 1966. Wow. What's your interpretation
1: of that? Is it, I mean, the, the obvious um, suggestion might be that this is a secret government project of some kind. and uh, But then on the other hand, there are all sorts of reports of, Aliens, whatever that means, uh, appearing to be normal human beings with ball caps sometimes and things of this kind. And, uh, there's also the, su- the suggestion of time travel, this sort of thing. So, what say you? Do you have an interpretation of this?
0: Sure, uh, well couple quick things. Now, on the shoulder of this man with the green military fatigue, there were these ranking insignias, like a, a U.S. Naval Admiral, when he would wear a suit, there was these ranking insignias. That's what Eddie Laxon saw on this gentleman. So that, that's one point. Second point, is, it's, it's very clear, and we've got a newspaper clip here, and I'm just going to go over this very briefly here. This is the Daily Oklahoman, March 1st, 1971 and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to hit you with a quote from Eddie Laxon here. Here's, here's what he said, quote, What I saw was definitely from not from space. The man was wearing fatigues and had a cap with the bill broken up like Air Force mechanics wear, Laxon said. It had common English letters on it. So according to this electrical engineer, he felt that this is one of ours. But with flag officer markings. Rank insignia with, with some type of insignia ranking uh, insignias on his shoulder.
1: Mm-hmm. What would the blue book people
0: TL4 say about it? written on the side of the crowd. Yeah. yeah,
1: Okay, uh, what did the blue book people say about this? If if anything?
0: Uh, okay, let me see if I can hit you with that here. And uh, okay, this is according to Project Blue Book conclusion. Unidentified. This case is carried as unidentified since after evaluation of all the available information, no concrete explanation is possible. Second Observer has not returned the request form 164. So they consider it unidentified. <laughs> um, I don't think it's unidentified.
1: No, no. Well, the thing with the government, people just say, uh, you know, when they talk about disclosure particularly, uh well you know the, the government is going to tell us what they do. well there is no the government I mean they're, they're competing agencies all sorts of turf battles some agencies know right. things other agencies don't and Ben you look like you want to say
2: something oh well um I, I have I have many things I'd like to say none of mo- most of which is is relevant um but I, I think it's I think it's interesting that there's you know, usually you hear kind of the opposite reaction, oh, this definitely isn't from Earth, right? You know, this is definitely something, you know, extraterrestrial, and said this is a terrestrial thing. And it, it makes sense, um, mostly because there in sort of this time period, let's say between Roswell to the present, right? There's been all sorts of different, you know, for lack of better words, iterations of of craft... Beings, you know, all sorts of other stuff, and you you'd think there'd be some sort of consistency. Sometimes there is, in in some ways there are, but there are sort of these odd things that kind of stick out. You know, like the Flatwoods Monster, and that whole incident kind of pops out in my head. Or well, yeah, you know,
1: 1956.
2: Yeah, and, and this Virginia. and this is 71, right? So you'd think there'd be some sort of concrete sort of I don't want to say concrete. That's not the right word. Sort of a, a consistent experience almost. But it it doesn't seem to be consistent ever, right? You know, you you sort of have this idea in your head of, okay, well, we know there's like, you know, there's triangular-shaped craft, there's circular craft, you know, saucers, you know, something like that. But this is something kind of out there, right? And I I think it's interesting that it's like, okay, well, we know it's no, no, quote-unquote – you know, we have a a pretty good idea that this is one of ours. So if, in your opinion, Michael, how much of the stuff that you've, let's say you've been researching, would you say is more of ours versus it being entirely extraterrestrial?
0: Honestly, I think the number is very high. It's extremely high. I think it's up to 90%. Wow. Very high percentage of And the reason why I mention that, and I'll give you a quick example here, and we can... Run through another case here really quickly. Now, mm-hmm. there was a case here. Uh, this is basically March. This is February 3rd, 1983, Mobile, Alabama. And just going to run through this really quickly. <clears throat> uh, the primary eyewitness was driving home after a dinner engagement. This is Mobile, Alabama, and she's alone. She's driving in her car. It's at night, and she hears this big booming noise. Her car starts shaking. She pulls off to the side of the road. She gets out of the vehicle. She looks under the vehicle. She thought the transmission may have fallen out. It was like a very severe, booming, rattling noise. Mm -hmm. Everything seemed to be okay. She got back into the car. She drove another half mile down the road. She looked off to the right. There was this lighted area that was really clear. And hovering about 20 feet above the ground was this massive... 210 foot long craft. Uh, it was 80 feet tall. It kind of had a kind of a spherical forward section, and then this tapered wedding cake section as it tapered back toward the aft part of the vehicle. Now, she said on the upper craft portion of the vehicle, there was a wraparound clear transparent section that took up one third of the leading edge of the craft, and then behind these windows, she said she could see what looked like Five foot 10 humanoid-looking beings which were wearing a one-piece, tight-fitting white flight suit. She mentioned that. Now, at, just after that section, there was another transparent section, and then she said she could see a door closing from right to left, and on the left-hand wall of this craft, there were tubes, pipes, and cylinders. Now, I've got, within my files, at least 15 cases of these mysterious pipes and cylinders and silencers, that are attached to walls and bottom of these craft. Now, she also mentioned that when she was standing below this craft, she could see literally hundreds of these clear, transparent porthole windows that allowed her to look from one side of the craft, clear through the interior, and all the way out to the other side. And she said that on the interior of the craft, it looked like a cross-beam and girder construction, like a truss bridge, and it also reminded her of an East Coast naval shipping yard where they're laying the keel of a new battleship and you have all these bulkheads and stringers. That's what she said the interior looked like. And she mentioned that the whole thing was put together by these large rivets. She could see rivets on the exterior of the craft. Now on huh. the bottom of the craft there were two gondolas that were transparent that had these same five foot ten humanoid-looking beings on the top portion of these gondolas which was connected to the bottom of the craft, there were these 24-inch by 24-inch highly polished mirror reflective devices. And this is back in 1983. I've got the original sketch uh, w- within the report. And the reference for this is the APRO Bulletin, Volume 32, Number 2, 1984. So here's another case where we've got pipes and cylinders We've got humanoid-looking beings. We've got rivets. We've got bulkheads. We've got stringers. It's looking very mechanical. It's looking man-made.
2: Hmm.
1: Wow. Uh, no, go ahead, Ben. I just... Um,
2: oh, no, I'm, I'm... Wanted to go back in time here. Oh, well, uh, we're going to stay in, in the future for a <laughs> second. Um, or back to the future. Whatever. Um. Yeah, that's that's interesting because usually you hear like smooth, everything's smooth. You can't really see any Not sort in of this an, case. An, yeah. yeah, I think that's really interesting. And now, now I'm, I have I have many logistical questions about this because I'm I'm wondering how how the U.S. how any any sort of you know military body could store something like this or you know this is ni- yeah we're t- 1971 1983. You know, you usually, you, usually, I'll say say that um, in quotes. You would see something. You know, the military is usually about roughly ten to fifteen years ahead of where of where we are as as civilians. Roughly, you know, maybe twenty
1: or knowledge or
2: knowledge, yeah. right? So it's like you know, they had the internet before everybody else did. You know, stuff like that. Let's, but you know, you'd think you'd see these these giant things in action at this point, right? You know, shock and awe sort of things. If uh, uh, or is it is it a logistical thing? Is it is it too expensive? You know, I, I always kind of find it kind of weird that it's like people kind of in the middle of nowhere kind of see these things. So logistically, where do you think these things are being stored? How and what, why why do you think it's always just these poor people driving around at night it's in the middle of nowhere?
0: Good question. Well, let's let's expand and let's uh, we want to remove all limitations. First of all. These craft could be, just throw it out there, they could be USOs, because 51% of all UFO cases are in point-of-fact USO cases, so mm-hmm. they could be stored underwater. No one would ever see them. That's um, one yeah, point. Um, good point. And number two, if, if someone wants to keep a secret, they can. They can do it. Uh, there's multiple locations of where these things could be stored, so uh, there's no telling what they could do. With the right amount of money and the right amount of brain power, there's no telling that what can be done. So all, all bets are off at this point, and it, c- it can be done.
1: Well, being a journalist, I noticed headlines. And a few years ago, I was uh, shocked by, by one that said, we uh, re- re- referring to China's um, secret nuclear, or semi-secret nuclear submarine program. China may be hiding its new submarines in the ocean. So I said, okay, <laughs> and, you know, so maybe. Maybe that wasn't quite as silly as it sounded, and uh, these things may be, may be uh, USOs indeed. Well, uh, let's go back in time a bit, in a sense, uh, and uh, talk about the 1890s, uh, because you sure. refer to that uh, quite uh, uh, well in your book, uh, from what I understand. Can you tell us about the UFO flaps of 125 years ago or so?
0: Yeah, see, that's the thing. When you come to ufology, as you know, uh a lot of people think that the origin point is june fourteenth, uh, nineteen forty seven, uh Kenneth Arnold sighting that, yeah. that time period. But really it, it dates back prior to by, by quite a bit. So if we go back to eighteen ninety seven mystery airship wave, which actually began in eighteen ninety six, uh we're we're looking at something that occurred over Sacramento, over Oakland, over San Francisco. And what people reported is this strange you could call it a flying craft had a wing on either side, it had a tail it had a very interesting uh, gondola section. Now what's interesting is people reported seeing anchors being lowered from these craft and they heard laughter coming from these craft there were big black dogs on the deck of these craft and The eyewitnesses that saw these vehicles at night, they were generally always at night. Number one, they had these very powerful beaming spotlights that were shining down to the towns below, causing chaos, just total chaos. People screaming and yelling and and horses darting from one side of the street to the other. They they didn't know what these things were. Now, people who saw these craft, they said that they saw, quote-unquote, well-dressed, eccentric inventor types with top hats on the deck of these craft <laughs> that were looking down and laughing at the people below. I mean, <laughs> to me, that just seems so weird. Uh, again, we got the beaming spotlights. And a lot of these craft, they could go against the wind back in 1897. Uh, a couple of quick points here. Eyewitness described the craft as being about 150 feet in length with four rotor-like arms. And we talked about the anchors being lowered. Uh, newspaper clippings of the time, the Record Union, Sacramento, California, November 23rd, 1896. Uh, strange visitors seen there on Saturday evening. And we want to make the point that when, in very rare cases, when these craft landed and the population of the towns actually got up to where these craft landed and spoke to the quote-unquote pilot, the eyewitnesses said that these quote-unquote pilots, in some cases, they were wearing smoke-colored glasses. So when you put this all together, you've got the big black dogs on the deck of the ship, you've got the well-dressed eccentric uh, inventors, you've got the fact that they were laughing and they were lowering anchors, and that the fact that they were wearing smoke-colored glasses, this really doesn't sound like an extraterrestrial alien visitor from thousands of light years away. It has a much more mechanical, terrestrial explanation that could be tied into the Sonora Aero Club. Very interesting. There is a uh, a train of thought,
1: of course, in in UFO history, uh, maybe you'd like to extrapolate upon it, Mm -hmm. that uh, people interpret what they see according to their own culture and knowledge. And uh, with the explanation that, that you've been giving, it's very possible that they interpret it that way because that's the culture that well, I mean, the craft
2: come from. Well, what were or the, the inventors? What were the bi- best-selling books of that time? You know, Jules Verne. right? Jules Verne. You know, mm-hmm. A Trip to the Moon, that's all that stuff, and then not not too too long after that, pro- uh, I can't remember the exact year, but whenever A Trip to the Moon was was made, one of one of the first sort of, you know, big big films with editing um, by Georges Millier in in France. You know, there, I think there was this this idea of of this hyper-mechanical culture. I guess modern people would refer to it as steampunk, (laughs) quote-unquote. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think that would definitely color perceptions. You know, what what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I I mean, they certainly, they mimic the form, fit, and function of craft at the time, like you mentioned some of the Jules Verne. So I think there's the best way to describe it is what they were familiar with. And if, if we just go by the eyewitness reports and we, we go by the newspaper clippings, and I should mention there are hundreds of newspaper clippings about these cases, starting from 1896 to 1897, all the way to Ohio, the East Coast. And I'm thinking, hmm, what would be the origin for this and why would they do this? Well, it wasn't that long prior to all these sightings if we go to the 1849 California Gold Rush, it sounds like someone was setting up a way to covertly transfer gold from the gold fields of Northern California all the way to the East Coast, but do it covertly. That could be why these mystery airship waves were built and cloned. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, was there government
1: involvement, do you think? Is it, is it what we today refer to as big government really started with Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. So do you think government was about well, or was it just private uh, enterprise?
0: According to Walter Bosley, these were financed by a eccentric group of rich investors called NIMSA back east from New York, hmm. and that's where they got the money to finance these programs, and he makes a very good case for it. Wow.
1: What about 1909? Uh, in, in that period, there were a number of sightings of the whole... Jersey Devil thing around Philadelphia. Yeah, don't forget it. the Hudson River Valley too. Hudson River Valley too. Um, yeah. w- 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 was there a connection there, or or, uh, or what?
0: Yeah, I, I think there probably is a connection. And Linda Zimmerman, who deserves a lot more credit than she gets. Yeah, dear friend. She, she of ours, has yeah on the on those sightings as well the the early nineteen hundred sightings, yeah, she's done a very good job on that
2: tremendous yep exactly yeah i heard one of her one of her lectures on that uh, oh yeah we we've
0: lectured at denver and we
1: were supposed to lecture i think uh together as well but but not together but in on the same same agenda, and i guess uh something happened that one of us couldn't- I, anyway uh So let's um, take our mid-show break, if we may, Ben. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on W O O 1240 AM 99.557, New England's windy Blackstone River Valley with our terrific guest today, Michael Schratt, And we'll be right back, so stay with us.
2: the night is alive join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the kingdom of
0: nigh hosted by heather wade the finest in late night talk listen live
2: free weeknights starting at 9 p.m pacific time at the talkstreamlive.com and the paranormal radio app
0: wanna take a ride And
1: welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on WON Radio, and we're back with Michael Schratt and we're discussing a lot of UFO cases that you probably never heard of. Uh, ben, do you want to continue, or can we get into the Michelin Man?
2: Oh, I think it, I think, um, it, it would be unfair for me to keep stepping on, on Peter's time. So
1: <laughs> oh, right, yeah, you're right.
2: I know. Let's, let's go been, to... I've uh, been so interested in all this stuff, I just yes, completely lost great track. stuff.
1: Uh, Peter Shelley hmm. from Bogota, Colombia, uh, one of our guest co-hosts from time to time, and he always sends in great questions. Sure, thanks. Very complimentary of Michael's work.
2: Yes, and uh, so Peter starts off with, uh, "What interesting feedback and speculations have you received regarding specific case reactions, or sorry, case recreations you have done?" Okay, well,
0: first of all, um, I want to give credit to my artist Tom Bogan who has done the bulk of my full-color illustrations. He's no longer with us, which I can't believe, but he has created uh, numerous illustrations based on all of the eyewitness testimony and reference and paperwork that I provided to him. So, when we talk about these cases, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. We actually have paperwork, documentation, newspaper clippings to back these up. So, credit goes to Tom Bogan. Now, there are a number of cases that I'm able to illustrate on my own, but if I can't do it, then I will uh, commission the artwork by the best of the best people that i work worked with, and that's why these these come out. So the, the goal here is to put you in the scene and make these cases come alive like you're actually there. That's the goal, and so I want to give credit to Tom Bogan. That's like And the, the feedback and that's I've got is that it, it, it makes you feel like you're there, and, and that's what I hope. I hope that people appreciate the work and you know the amount of uh, blood, sweat, and tears that has gone into this, to, just to make these cases come alive. That That's the goal. Mm. It's wonderful. And uh, with Michael's
1: permission, we're going to put a few uh, of these illustrations on the BehindTheBarrelNormal.com, our website, uh, on the Talking Points page for the show. So uh, give us 24 hours or so for that, and uh, you'll be able to at least uh, see some. Now, Michael, tell us where people can get the book and uh, okay, where they the, can find
0: out more the, about you. No problem. The book is called Dark Files, A Pictorial History of Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. It includes everything we've talked about today. I've got 66 of my best cases. They're all referenced, and after the des- description of each case, I give you the references of where you can verify this on your own. It, it includes the full-color illustrations, the drawings, uh, that really make these cases come alive. And, and I challenge people. I want you to question me. And if all things being equal, if we're using the scientific principle here, and I provide you for, with the references, you should be able to go out on your own and verify and get the exact same results that I get. That is the scientific principle. Mm. It's, it's available on Amazon right now.
1: Excellent. Okay, uh, sometimes that question deceives our guests into thinking the interview is over, which it is not. Mm. So let's continue. Now, uh, the the Michelin Man thing, I've always been fascinated by that. I've seen illustrations of that. Uh, The Michelin Man, for anybody who doesn't know, the Michelin Tire Company has this guy made out of tires and the advertising uh, character sort of thing. But uh, things like this have actually been seen, 1968, 1977. Can you uh, talk about that, Michael?
0: Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Yeah. Uh, no discussion about UFOs would ever be complete if we don't talk about the Michelin Man. Now, I'm aware that it sounds crazy. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds like it would damage your credibility. But I, I have to go where the data is taking us. I cannot discount what what it's saying here. Now, we'll set this up here. This thing's been seen all around the world, multiple locations, multiple times, multiple witnesses. This is m- July 31st, 1968, Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean, and the primary eyewitness, and this is referenced, primary eyewitness was picking grass for his rabbits. He kind of went around this bend in the trees there, and he ends up seeing (laughs) this very unusual craft. It was about 16 feet across. It had this elliptical egg shake appearance to it. The forward section had a transparent wraparound section, and on the left and right-hand side of this egg-shaped craft, it had a translucent blue section that you couldn't really see through. Now, the whole thing was propped up about three and a half feet from the ground on what looked like a glass opaque pedestal, and then there was a mirror image, one of those, on the upper side of the craft. And he's watching this, and he's looking inside this, and what does he see He sees the Michelin men. There were two of them. (laughs) And the one on the left, the one on the left kind of turned around. He had his uh, back facing the primary eyewitness. The one on the right saw he was being looked at by the primary eyewitness, and there was this big sparking flash. The beings and craft disappeared. And then about two weeks later, when the primary eyewitness was interviewed, they went back to the site. And they, they had, uh, discovered residual effects of radiation in the soil. So, let's break it down. It, it's a CE1 because it's a visual sighting. It's a CE2 because it had physical effects. And it's a CE3 because he saw, quote unquote, beings. So, it, in, it encapsulates all of the primary features here. And, uh, the reference for this, there's multiple references, but the primary, uh, primary source is Flying Saucer Review January, February, 1969. But I don't want to stop here because I want to hit you with another Michelin man case. This is March 14th, 1976, Lyra, Spain. The parents of a younger boy who just got out of this graduating Naval Academy ceremony, they're driving home, it's at night, and uh, they're kind of going around a bend in the road. They go up this hill, go down this hill, and it was the wife who was in the passenger side, she looked off to the left and she could see how she described this is this corkscrew light that was transforming itself from a light to what looked like Sunday night at the Oscars. It looked like an Oscar award, but it looked like a Michelin man. It had this rubber black diving suit on. It had clenched fists that were kind of pointed down toward the ground. Its feet were together, and it was hovering about 16 inches off the ground. This thing was not walking. It was floating above the ground. Now, as they passed by this strange Michelin man being, the electrical system on their car burnt out, and the lights went off. So right now, it's a, it's a CE1, it's a CE2, it's a CE3. We've got the original map, and the source for this is, is the Gray Barker UFO uh, collection in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Had to dig down deep for that. Now, I want to hit you with what the primary eyewitness said. Now, his name is Don Vincente Correll, and he just made a very interesting, simple quote here. Quote, it was not of this world, but of another. And when they drove by this, uh, two cars that were behind them actually pulled off to the side of the road They asked if the primary eyewitness and his wife needed assistance because their lights were gone. So the other cars, one car got in front of the witness's car, the other car got in back, and then they they sort of helped them get back to the next city. So, you know, this was a very interesting case, independent confirmation of the uh, Reunion Island Michelin Man case. Hmm. Now,
1: what would you say about the Uh, theory? Would you say this is one of the... 10% of of cases that might be uh, extraterrestrial, ultraterrestrial or non-terrestrial or whatever.
0: Well, according to Jalen Hynek, if UFOs were nothing more than extraterrestrial space vehicles, how boring that would be. So even (laughs) he knew that this is a multi-pronged phenomenon here. You've got extraterrestrials, You've got aliens, because there's a difference t- between those two. Right. You've got USOs. You've got UFOs. You've got interdimensional craft. Uh you've got possible time travel that we've so you've got all of the this is a multi-headed hydra. It, it, it cannot be put in just one box. There's so many multiple things and they're multi-layered and they're they're hovering above each other, and some of these converge and you've got entanglement. And so that's why this thing has been dragging on for eighty years. And uh, it, it's just been such a, a difficult. We, we've got to do something. We, we've got to do something drastic to move this field forward. We need this physical evidence, or we're just going to be spinning our wheels.
1: So, so well stated. Now, having almost become a priest, uh, I'm interested in the Father Gill episode of
0: 1959 in Papua New Guinea. Sure, sure, we can talk about that. That that's a that ranks right up there as probably top top three. I would say that's top three. That's how significant this case is. Now, I would mention, too, is uh, about a year ago I spoke to uh, Jalen Hynek's son, Paul Hynek. He was, in in 1974, they were in Evanston, and the father visited them for dinner, believe it or not. So you've got Jalen Hynek on this side of the dinner table, you've got Father Gill, and then you've got Paul Hynek. And Father Gill just laid out this entire story to both Paul Hynek and Jalen Hynek. And when I heard the description from Paul of what the father had mentioned, I said, boom, wow, yes, we got a real case. Because he wasn't seeking fame or fortune, credible witness. There were 25 other eyewitnesses that saw it with Father Gill. And we'll just kind of break it down here. This is June 26, 1959, Papua New Guinea. Uh, a little bit later in the afternoon, about 6 p.m., and what Father Gill and at least 25 other eyewitnesses saw, they saw a two-tiered wedding cake. Bottom tier was 35 feet in diameter. Upper tier was 20 feet in diameter. It had what looked like landing gear legs coming out at about a 15-degree angle from the bottom surface of the lower part of of the wedding tier. It also had four men. Okay, They were described as looking like humans, not aliens. They they looked like men. There were four of them. Two of them were near the front edge of the craft. The other two were further back toward the center of the craft, which were more obscured. And there was about a 45-degree bluish-white beam coming off the center part of the craft itself. Now, while all this is going on, Father Gill raised his hand above his head and waved at the two beings that he saw near the leading edge of the crack. And they waved back, believe <laughs> it or not. They actually waved back. And this 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 case has two names. It's called the Father Gill case. It's also called the They Waved Back case as well. So it actually has two uh, separate names. Now, independent researchers that got back to the site where all this happened, investigators that got there, they interviewed... The other witnesses as well and had them draw sketches and these sketches coincided. They were virtually identical. And I shall also mention too that, uh, Father Gill brought a lantern up near the craft while it was hovering above and he moved the lantern and the lantern mimicked the movement or the, the craft mimicked the movement of Father Gill's lantern. So there was some type of communication going on here and again this is back in June 26, 1959. Pretty amazing. Uh, one does
1: hear of this uh, mimicking of lights that people shine at this thing, uh, even during the, the Mothman cases of the 1960s where there were many UFO sightings.
0: What's your interpretation of that phenomenon? I'm not completely familiar with the Mothman sightings, but I know Linda gets into uh, all of the Hudson Valley sightings. She, I, I have to give credit to Linda Zimmer She is a, a priority one class act She's such a great recent. Yep, very well, dear
1: friend of ours, been on the show many times. So uh, well, we'll ask uh, that uh, to her sometime. Uh, okay. Also, the uh, I'm, I'm interested too in the water pumper UFO, Oregon, 2012, very recent. And what's the water pumper image all about?
0: Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, we can we can talk about that as well. Now, uh, I want to mention just kind of give you some sources of where I got a lot of this information. One of the sources comes from David Marler in New Mexico, and he probably has the largest private collection of UFO files now. He has acquired the QFOS collection. That used to be 2457 West Peterson Avenue in Chicago, and kind of, as you mentioned in the beginning there, it took me about three years to go through all 50,000 cases, and and yes, I I did go through all of those. It was a boots-on-the-ground crusade research effort. Hmm. It required... Uh, going there on every Sunday afternoon. They'd they'd give me access to the entire collection, and I'd literally just get there on kind of a, a Sunday morning afternoon, and I'd just start pulling these file cabinets out. And the manila folders within these cabinets were packed so close together you couldn't put a razor blade in between. That's how packed these were, and that's why it took so long. So it was a function of pulling each case out individually, very briefly reviewing the case, if it had a three page report, a drawing, sketch, or illustration, and then a flight path report, I copied it. And from there, I commissioned the full color artwork, and that's how, kind of how we got here today. Now, so David Marlar has the QFOS collection within his files in New Mexico. So this was a case that didn't make into, into his book, but it came from him. So this is Little Pudding River, Oregon, 2012. Primary eyewitness stated that he saw what looked like about a 180-foot-wide triangular-shaped craft, sort of had uh, rounded corners. Now, there was a 6-foot diameter tube, transparent tube, that retracted from the bottom of the craft that made contact with the Little Putting River and started sucking up water through this tube. Now, right next to the tube, it started spraying water down, And then he said there were three release valves that popped out from the bottom of the craft, and they were spraying water out as well. Now, while all this is going on, there were at least three orbs that were circling this entire craft, and there was a pale blue beam of light that shot off at a 45-degree angle, very similar to the Father Gill case. Now, while all this is going on, He said that he could hear this washing machine sound. That's what he said. He said it was a washing machine sound, and it would, like, complete the cycle and do it again. He saw it on three occasions, and the sheriff saw it as well. So, at the very least, it's a CE2 case because it, it did have physical effects on the river itself. And, again, this is back in 2012, according to the David Marler Collection. Wow, pretty amazing. The uh, <clears throat> the notion of
1: orbs, which you bring up, is uh, raises another uh, question. Uh, the great uh, and late Ted Phillips, uh, who gathered tremendous amounts of information on uh, UFO landings and physical evidence for that, said to us that he w- had noticed that over the past several decades, UFOs had become uh, when, when the less nuts and bolts appearance uh, you know, in appearance to more uh, almost ethereal or uh, balls of light, orbs, this sort of thing. Have you noticed that, too, um, as a pattern in, in cases from the early days up to up until today, the nature of the UFOs has changed to something less physical, or, if yeah. you want to say that?
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, too. Now, we should keep in mind that that these UFOs are tricksters because they can come and go as they please, they can materialize and dematerialize as they please. They can go in and out of oceans, streams, rivers, ponds. And they've been seen flying right into the side of mountains and having no impact whatsoever. So yep. whatever these UFOs are, they're tricksters. Amazing. Did we get to a Peter's second question?
2: Uh, it was vaguely touched upon, but okay. I don't know if we ever actually got a full answer, so I guess we can we can hop into that. Sure. Um, so the second question we have from Peter is, in addition to creating uh, spectacular uh, new artwork for these cases, do you ever attempt uh, to do more research on them, including attempting to contact surviving witnesses?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, a lot of these cases are very old. We're talking 60, 70 years old. Uh, a lot of these have never been seen by, by anyone. They've been they've been buried in the QFOS archive. That's why I definitely wanted to pull them out. Uh, I'll give you one case, an example. This is USS FDR, 1958 Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The primary eyewitness was a man named Chester Grzynski. I spoke to him on the phone. I tracked him down. He's no longer with us now. This is somewhat of a, more of a known case, but still a little bit more obscure. Uh, set this up here. Again, 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And one reason why the USS FDR aircraft carrier had a history of UFO sightings or USO sightings is because it's possible, the reason why is, the USS FDR was the first aircraft carrier to carry nuclear weapons on board. Uh And uh, again, primary eyewitness was Chester Grzynski. It's about 9 p.m. at night, and according to his report, that was written in the flat-top newsletter and two other newspaper clippings, uh, there was commotion below decks. There was screaming, there were yelling, there was chaos, people were screaming. They were trying to get to the flight deck, and it was a chaotic situation. I've got his original sketch, his original MUFON report. When they got to the flight deck, there were 25 eyewitnesses just standing on the flight deck, looking up, and they saw this yellowish glow approaching the aircraft carrier, and then when it parked itself about 150 feet above the flight deck, this was no vague nebulous yellow orb. This was about a 200-foot-long cigar-shaped craft. I've got his original sketch in my files here, and we can send you that uh, later as well, but about, about 200 feet in length. Now they, they said, according to the primary eyewitness, they could feel the heat radiating off this craft onto their faces. So it's a CE2, 200 feet in length. On the side of it, they could see these rectangular cutout windows running along the length of the craft. Behind these windows, the primary eyewitness said that he could see what looked like about 5 foot 10 humanoid looking beings that were walking back and forth between these windows and one of them actually leaned up on one of these windows put his hand above his head like he was waving down to the naval personnel below they could see this and he he kind of pressed his face against the window and was looking down to the uh, naval personnel below now this thing departed at a high rate of speed and the way this case concluded is when they sailed into port elements of the three-letter intelligence agencies got on board the aircraft carrier. They confiscated the records, the tapes, the radar tapes, the logbooks, and the excuse they made was, quote-unquote, gambling below decks. And that is the USS FDR case back in November
1: 1958. There you go. Speaking again of of the more ethereal elements, uh, the uh, great British researcher... Jenny Randles has coined the term "time storms," uh, and oh. the, the, yeah, the, this has to do uh, with uh, The question is: Have you encountered cases where there are uh, cloud-like or mist-like phenomena? Well, we got a video. Of when I sent it to you uh, yesterday, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. Uh, or um, uh, the buzzing, humming sounds that you mentioned are all associated with this. What say you about that?
0: Uh, I I do have two cases that include uh, clouds as well, where this cloud was moving in a rapid formation. It parked itself right over a primary eyewitness who was on a horse, and then emerging from the cloud was about a 35-foot diameter dish-shaped craft that had a blue coronal discharge around the leading edge. And so it's a CE2, it's a CE3, but to answer your question, yes, there, there are these UFO cases associated with clouds, connected to craft,
1: Very interesting.
0: Where is your work taking you next? Uh, I am drilling down very deeply on Leonard Stringfield crash retrieval cases. That's where I'm going now. Now, I've already written another book on crash retrievals connected to Leonard Stringfield, but I'm going through all five of his status reports with a very fine tooth comb, pulling out all the details, and I'm going to uh, commission a brand new set of illustrations for all those cases. Excellent.
1: Well, I want a chance to uh, read this book, which, as I say, I always try to read uh, the, the guest books beforehand. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have you back, but this is just really amazing. Tell us again
0: about where it can be, people can find out more. Uh, excuse me. Sure. <clears throat> uh, uh, the book, again, is called Dark Files, A Pictorial History of Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. It's available on, on Amazon. It's all illustrated, all referenced. You can read it in one day. This isn't some 600-page volume that's all text. Everything I do, everything I do, is illustrated, drawings, sketches, illustrations, paintings. I, you know that's how, that's how I learn anyway. I like to see a, an illustration of when, when someone's presenting a case, I want to see what it looks like, just like everybody else. So that's one thing The other thing is you can kind of continue to follow me on my YouTube channel called Blue Room Media. Every week, I'm posting a new video about historical cases. Now, I've got three warehouses of cases. Keep me going till the next ice age, and I'm just going to keep <laughs> bringing these out. So it's a never-ending crusade.
1: Excellent. Dan, did you have anything else?
2: Um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's, it's. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to word this as I'm as I'm I'm trying to sort of create sort of a a, a final question that we can kind of have a nebulous exit to uh let's 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 the field of ufology is is definitely evolving in a way in in its in sort of its its own fun little way like most fields in the paranormal do um now we're we're finding ourselves kind of at at for lack of better words a paradigm shift almost where we're we're getting to a point where a lot of the, a lot of the old explanations just really aren't, aren't working anymore, and we're trying our best to kind of wrap our, our heads around it. And it seems as if there's a lot of a lot of sort of like push towards this whole idea of, um, uh, you know, as we kind of mentioned earlier in the show, disclosure. Now, how do you feel about where the, the state of ufology is going? Where do, where do you see it heading within the next, you know, five to ten years?
0: Oh, good question. Well, if you look at, if we if we count June 24th, 1947 as the origin point for ufology, now that's been over 75 years ago now, this is the 75th anniversary. Mm. Now, we, we have made some progress, no doubt we have made some progress, but do we really have what we need or are we just spinning our wheels? Without the physical evidence, we're just not going to move this ball forward. We need the physical evidence, we need the gun camera footage, we need the 8x10 glossies, we need the debris, the craft, and the bodies. We need the physical evidence. Anything short of that, we're just spinning our wheels. And so that's what I think we should focus our, our attention on. Mm-hmm. Anything less than that, it, it's it, we're, we're going to be here another 50 years, and, and we're all going to be gone, and we're not going to know. And so that's why we've got to make a management decision, and we've got to... Recover the physical evidence. That's how we're going to move forward.
1: Well said. Okay, well, uh, stick with us there as we do our announcements. Uh, First of all, I wanted to say Happy Mother's Day to all uh, and uh, one and all. And uh, why don't you take it away from there, Ben?
2: Sure thing. And uh, speaking of all sorts of wonderful festivals, the Exeter UFO Festival is back after a two-year hiatus, and that will center at the historic Exeter New Hampshire Town Hall. Uh, Over the Labor Day weekend, that's September 3rd and 4th, Uh, more information will be forthcoming. This is a great event uh, sponsored by the Exeter Exeter Area Kiwanis Club uh, to benefit local children's charities. We plan to do our traditional live broadcast from the event on Sunday with a panel of the speakers. Uh, The subject of our talk there will be time storms, uh, with thanks to the uh, great British researcher Jenny Randalls, whom we mentioned earlier coined the term. Uh, this is a very fun event. The whole town gets involved. Restaurants serve things like Roswell Burgers, Final Frontier Franks, Alien Crunch Ice Cream, and all sorts of other fun stuff, and there's more information to come.
1: It's a great event. Visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 1,100 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on w o o n a m and FM, including... Uh, shows that have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. You can download our show app. It doesn't do much, but it doesn't cost it anything either. And you'll get uh, notifications of our uh, shows as they are posted, uh, audio and video. So... Um, Talk about the charities there, Ben. If you yes.
2: Want. So we have, uh, our, our charity page on our website that's behindtheparanormal.com, uh, with several links to good causes that we've adopted over the years, including Hope for Hildale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, uh, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Hades Orphans, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, uh, of America the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, and most importantly, the, uh, or sorry, most recently, I should say, the Western Connecticut, <laughs> the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund.
1: Yeah, the uh, fewer tornadoes, the better. Yes. But uh, we should point out that we know the
2: people who run these
1: charities. We vet them very, very carefully, and uh, so w- we can certainly vouch for them, especially uh, Helper Hades Orphans, Hilldale Cemetery, et cetera. And uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, we know all these folks, so it's good. Yes. So what's on the front burner for next week, Ben?
2: Well, uh, we have uh, next week the getting ready to go into the oven and come out a show. Uh, that's on May 15th. We'll bring you an open line show, which we haven't done in a very long time. And we welcome back the great Shane Searway, who we haven't had on in, geez, I don't even know how long, to help tackle questions from listeners on many, many paranormal subjects. And it's always a fun time with Shane, and it's it's going to be nice to have him back.
1: It certainly will, and we encourage you to write to uh, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com to send in any of your questions. You can also call the show at any point, uh, at, uh, 401-766-1240, station, uh, 1240 AM. Yes. And, uh, th- that's, uh, you're invited to do that at any time. We, uh, will take questions on all paranormal subjects, including UFOs, uh, things that, uh, um, uh, go bump of the night, uh, and things that don't even have names yet, as we sometimes uh, uh will describe it.
2: Well, we, we also have a backlog of years and years and years of questions. Well, that don't people, <laughs> t- tell
1: people get discouraged if but, uh, no, th- well, we tell them that. But no, we do have um, a lot of questions that come in, and uh, <clears throat> we're particularly excited to welcome back Shane, who has a tremendous uh, record of um, solving very, very uh negative cases uh, for
2: families and for homes and so uh and he has a particular uh, t- talent of making things very accessible.
1: He does and he's he's very reachable and uh, people relate to him. He's a really a great teammate of ours. Oh yeah. Okay, so all right, uh we have a quote. Uh, we leave you today with a thought from American lawyer of all things Jerry Spence, quote, I would rather have a mind open by wonder than one closed by belief.
2: I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal.
0: Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.